What if you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious? Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome back, everyone. I'm so excited to be here today with Wade Brill. Wade, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you as well. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So before we get started with the first question, I'd love to share more about Wade with our listeners. So Wade Brill is a mindfulness coach, podcaster, and speaker who helps busy professionals experiencing stress and overwhelm, be more present, productive, and energized. So it's not surprising that given that, even as a short intro, I'm going to say more, but there's reason why I wanted to speak with Wade on the show. So at the age of 21, Wade survived Hodgkin's lymphoma while simultaneously losing her mother to leukemia. This major life interruption inspired Wade to realize how precious life is and that practicing radical self-care is smart, not selfish. Wade devotes her life's work to helping others connect to their own inspiration. Wade is also a professional certified coach, energy leadership index practitioner, and meditation facilitator through UCLA's Semmel, is it? Semmel Institute of Neuroscience and Human Behavior. She hosts the popular Centered in the City podcast and is the creator of the Centered in the City on-demand platform offering modern meditations and self-care resources for busy professionals. She is a recognized speaker at conferences, companies, and retreats, and she helps busy professionals create calm and clarity amid chaos and realize the importance of their one mind, one body, and one life. So I'm so excited to talk to Wade. And I think the first place I'll start, Wade, is to just ask you, you know, when people come to you in overwhelm, where do you start with them? It's a great question. Um, Overwhelm can be such a spectrum. And so Most of the time, it's in grounding in some sort of ritual for themselves, some sort of practice, because when we're in overwhelm, we typically can go, well, it it happens in two ways. We can either go into that like uh, hyper aroused state where we're in that fight or flight, super stressed, super like, uh, or we can go into more of like a shutdown state where we're just like lacking motivation and direction and have no idea. And so it really depends on kind of which form of overwhelm is showing up for my client. Um, But we start with a ritual of, uh, and I say that not in a religious way, but in a ritual to me and how I work with my clients is a daily practice that gets to serve and support them, like filling their cup up first, charging their batteries first. And that helps kind of bring them back down to and bring their nervous system back to this baseline so that they can start to then think more clearly and understand, okay, what is the vision that I have here? And then start to understand, okay, what are my values and how can I start be, how can I start to take more mindful action with the awareness and building towards this vision that I want to create for my life? And sometimes that overwhelmed stage, that ritual, you know, it's not just one session, right? That can be multiple sessions because it's either building a new habit or really understanding the blocks around taking the time for yourself. So, you know, each client that I work with is, is um, on their own kind of rhythm and timeline. Yeah. I appreciate what you're sharing, which is first that overwhelm can show up and look different. Uh, for different people. I'm curious, would you be able to share just a couple of examples of rituals and what that looks like for folks or what you might recommend? Yeah. So 
um, for pers- so personally, my morning ritual is my meditation practice. I have a morning meditation practice and it varies in length, but it is this commitment that I'm going to take at least one minute. Typically it's one to 20 minutes that I find just sitting on my meditation pillow. And again, you don't have to have a pillow um, and taking that time to connect to self, to calm my own nervous system, to kind of help all of the, um, you know, that image of snow globe, right? When the snow is kind of like all fluttered up, like just to help everything kind of settle. Cause in the morning I notice I get very activated and get like already that feeling of, and you'd be doing more. I need to jump into stuff. And, and so help everything settle so I can have a little bit more clarity. And then other things can be added on to my, my morning routine, but that is like a daily ritual. That's like, I notice when I don't have that, um, for other clients, that I've worked with, it could be like a morning walk. Um, it could be just putting out their like yoga mat and doing five minutes of stretching in the morning. It could be for um, some clients have like put on a certain playlist and just allow themselves to like move and be in that playlist, whether it's head headphones on or you know they're by themselves in their own bedroom or their living room. Um, but really it's just that, or, or some clients have like a reading practice where, you know, they wake up and it's, they want to spend, they notice like reading has been something they wanted to do for themselves and they can't fit it in their day. So it's, you know, taking maybe five minutes to read one chapter or, you know, just spending 10 minutes reading a chapter. Um, sometimes some clients is journaling, you know, so we kind of explore all the different practices and I'm very much passionate about not telling my clients what to do. I think there's this space in, especially in the entrepreneurial world, um, which my clients typically aren't, but you know, you hear like all about the miracle morning, which is great, but like, this is what you need to be doing in your morning. You know, these are your staples that you have to be doing. And I'm very much anti about that. I'm there to support my clients tapping into their own wisdom of what actually like would feel nourishing. And just for them to ask themselves that is like where the power is so that they can then be empowered of like, oh yeah, I can like charge my batteries. I can fill my cup. Yeah, that's great. I love that visual of the snow globe and getting shaken shaken up and then like those, um, the settling of the snow. And I'm curious, like many of the things that you mentioned and you talked about the nervous system and calming things down. And it really relates to this idea of energy management. I'm curious if you can say a little bit more about that. Um, yeah. So I'm certified in something called uh, energy, energy Leadership Index Assessment. And it's a scale. It's a, a really helpful scale from levels of energy one through seven for us to understand how we're energetically like showing up from Level one is all about like, woe is me. Level two is anger. Uh, level three is more about, you know, I only care about me winning. You can win too, but I only care about me winning. Level four is all about service, right? How can I be of service? Level five is this win-win mentality. Level six is like love, you know, we're all connected synergy and like level seven is, you know, none of us exist, like super woo wooey, very spiritual. Um, so having that framework with some of my clients who do the assessment helps them give some tangible feedback of how they're energetically showing up under stress in, in the day to day. And so that's one thing is that it gives you this framework to recognize your energy management of, oh, I'm in like level one right now, or this is a level one thought. Or how can I step into a level five thinking, which is this win-win, um, where I personally just like coached myself through that the other day when, you know, thinking about Thanksgiving plans, I was like, okay, what's a level five thought? What's the win-win here? Because I'm totally in the like, woe is me. This is not thanks, you know, Thanksgiving's not going to look like what it's supposed to look like conversation. So that is, um, is a tool I use from a very like analytical perspective with energy management. 
And then I also support my clients through energy management, through their nervous system and then understanding and gaining the physical body awareness of what stress and overwhelm and burnout feel like in their bodies. And I say their bodies because the bodies, our bodies have so much knowledge and wisdom and they know what's like truth with a capital T without our minds making up all the bullshit or the stories or the whatever from our interpretations. And so when we can read our bodies, it becomes like this thermometer to help us understand, am I in a hyper aroused state? Am I feeling that like stress, 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 overwhelm? What can I do to manage myself, you know, to come back to more of a calm, clear-headed, connected state? Or am I in this hypo aroused state where I'm in this despair? And so just being able to sense into the body to help regulate is also a really powerful um, entry point. So it sounds like, and I, I experience this too, where I think our body knows before our mind knows, right? Before we have that real rational thought, as you said. And I, I love that you are playing with both that rational side, but you also have that really feeling side and emotional side. Um, I'm curious with your clients like that may have, you know, I don't know if you have some clients that may have some resistance to like, you're asking me to get into my body. I don't know what that feels like. How do you, how do you get them aware of kind of starting to listen to their body for information? Yes. Great question. And I definitely do have some clients that are, um, you know, more in the tech space or engineers. And so just, it's a different, you know, side of the brain that we're, we're working on connecting with. And just because it's not natural or normal, like their first impulse should go there, doesn't mean they can't still tap into it. It's just a muscle that we continue to build. So it's about holding space. And that's where mindfulness comes in. That's where the practice of mindfulness, where as mindfulness, the definition I use is being present in the moment, moment to moment with a kind and curious quality. And so can we turn that lens inwards just to notice like what's here? Notice the thoughts, notice the physical sensations, notice if there are emotions that are coming up. And I have some clients have a really hard time being able to label emotions, which makes sense because, you know, we're typically not taught how to label our emotions um, or, uh, you know, they have a hard time being able to, um, you know, they'll say things like, yeah, I feel good you know, and get, instead of get a little more detailed, like, oh, I feel warmth or I feel, um, so it just takes practice, but, you know, just continuing to like hold that curious space for them and also to not force it. You know, that's why I kind of have different level, like entry levels for people because people are going to connect to this material differently. Yeah, I can imagine you starting in one space and then gradually working them towards like and deepening a practice around that. That sounds, uh, I could see that really making sense for people. You mentioned burnout and I was curious to hear a little bit more about your experience with like, what does burnout look like? Almost like what are the signs people should be looking out for? So I think it can depend. Um, you know, if you, if we had this conversation pre-pandemic, this idea of burnout, what I was seeing from a lot of my clients was the sense of just like overworking, overworking, not setting boundaries, um, not knowing how to take time for themselves, um, or like working a lot, but not knowing not having feeling the connection of the meaning into their work, like, right. Not having that fuel them. And that's definitely still true post uh, pandemic um, in these current times we're in, but the different form of burnout I'm seeing is just like people are at capacity. Like we have had, am I allowed to curse? Sure. We've <laughs> <laughs> you know, had a lot of a lot of shit going on, you know, and 2020 has been heavy. And I just, I think people are physically from a human perspective, just at capacity of how much more 
trauma and stress and uncertainty do they need to navigate even if their household has been healthy and everybody's had a job, right? And that's that's a select group of people who have been privileged in that. And you know, and then there are people who have lost their job, who are facing facing racial discrimination, who are um, you know, having to deal with childcare or be a working full-time and managing remote learning, like right? right? They're they're just so swamped that that is, I think, the new kind of burnout. And so it's like how can people just survive, right? The idea of thriving right now is kind of a joke, right? It's just like, how can we survive in an easeful way? Like, or how can we add just a little bit more ease so that people can feel like they can breathe as they're just taking it moment by moment. And that's kind of the, the burnout and the symptoms are, you know, exhaustion, um, like lacking the motivation, that sense of overwhelm. Um, I've heard a lot of people, you know, especially who are in marketing or advertising these days, kind of just be like, what's, or even tech, like, what's the purpose of my job? You know, seeing the connection of what are they doing and how is it contributing to the greater world? So there still is that element, but I think it's more from this capacity perspective. Right yeah, it's it's so interesting. I mean, what you're describing is that it's really acute right now. And um, I'm curious in that, you know, where do you start when it's that acute? Like, how do you advise people to find that little bit of ease, that opening to, you know, start to decrease that feeling of overwhelm? You, you started by saying start first with a ritual. So I, I want to acknowledge that you, you started us there at the beginning, but like kind of where do you go from there? Well, it, you know, I think it's building it in, right? Building in those moments. Um, when I facilitate workshops like for corporations, for instance, it's like offering that moment in the workshop, right? It's not talking about it, but it's doing it so that people feel it. And the feeling becomes more of that muscle memory of like, oh my God, yeah, that felt really nice to like exhale. And they might not remember to keep doing it, you know, but then they might, right? And it's like that seed was planted. Um, There's a phrase I I like to use that we can't swim, we can't learn how to swim in a tsunami, right? And so it's like, how can we be practicing these techniques more in a micro, what I call mindful moments, but like these micro moments so that it's not so overwhelming to add it in. And, and then, so it's not like, Oh, I need to do something else. It's like, no, this is a staple to support me. So, you know, just strengthening that muscle over time. And then when you have more capacity, when you realize that's been helpful, maybe people start to add in other helpful resources. Yeah. It sounds like to really build up that resiliency. I'm wondering, are there some examples of, you just mentioned like taking a breath of like quick mindful moments that people, because I think sometimes in moments of overwhelm or when people are feeling really busy um, and they're just at capacity, they find it hard to really see how can I possibly add something else in? But you just mentioned this, the idea of a deep breath you know, and it, as we all do that, it's interesting how, you know, literally in 10 seconds, you can feel different just by taking a deep breath. So, and that that doesn't take very long. And frankly, you can be multi, well, we shouldn't multitask supposedly, but right, you're sitting in a meeting, you pause while somebody else is talking, you take a nice deep breath and that can change and you feel, you feel it in your body, right? So do you have other examples of what people might be able to incorporate in a you know, a mindful moment. Yeah, for sure. And I have a whole um, framework that I use with people. It's called the mindful hand of self-care. And so for those that can see, I have a hand up, but you could look at your hand if you're just listening. And and so the thumb is all about our mindset. The things that we say to ourselves, our self-talk. Fuel is about, um, is, a, is a pointer finger for food and nourishment and what we fuel our body with. And we like to point to what we want. 
The middle finger stands for movement. So how we move and be in our body. And, and that's the middle finger intentionally because it's the first thing you typically say F you to. The ring finger is about space. So what we put in our physical space, the people in our physical space, and then the pinky finger is renewal, how we rest and restore. And so you can have mindful moments in kind of all of these categories, all this, and this mindful hand is really about how you give to yourself so you can give to others. And so some examples, you know, from a fuel perspective, like when you're making dinner, maybe you're making dinner for your family and it's been a really stressful day, right? How can you slow yourself down and chop the carrot or chop the piece of broccoli or, you know, cook the stir fry or whatever you're doing with mindful awareness, slowing down and just practicing mindful cooking, you know, being with it, noticing the smells, like noticing the seasoning, uh, thinking about the food, where it came from, right? That That is all a practice in helping to regulate your nervous system to slow, slow down, come to more of a present moment. Um, you know, same thing could be for making coffee in the morning, right? Using that as your ritual or using that as your mindful moment. Um, there's so many different types of breathing techniques to think about. Uh, I recently, this is another mindful moment I've been loving. I recently just got a little trampoline, like a little mini, um, I forget what they're called. Uh, but anyway, a little mini trampoline. It's outside on my deck. It's covered. I live in Seattle, so it rains a lot in the winter. And so those moments where it's maybe raining and I don't want to go out on a walk or I don't have time, I'm in back-to-back calls. I go out on the trampoline and I do a little jumping break for a minute. And it completely shifts my energy. It can, gives me um, like a little boost. It also helps me kind of like declutter some of the like gunk I might've held on from that meeting or from that call. Uh, and I'm filled with a little bit more endorphins. So that's another one. Another one is like hugging people. You know, we're working from home these days. So that's an advantage. We can go hug our partner, hug our animal or dog or cat, whatever it is, our child. And that moment, you know, gives us some boost of chemicals, you know, oxytocin in our brain that can also help us just feel more connected and present. So there's so many different little mindful micro moments we can practice. I love all of those from, you know, using your hand as a guide to, and what's really great about so many of these things that you're mentioning are that they're, they are simple. They don't have to take an hour. They don't have to take, you know, there are things that you can be doing, like you said, even in the kitchen, slowing it down and utilizing that time to become more present for what's happening in the moment. Um, so it's not something you have to add to your day. You can just be more present and mindful in something you're already doing. So I really love that. And they're free, you know, it's not about us buying like fancy equipment or like, you know, it's most of these are free and these are things that we're doing. And just as we do it intentionally, right. Or even just standing up in between zoom calls and feeling our feet like that gets us out of our head right there's just so much power in all that yeah it's so great one of the things that's coming to mind for me and this is kind of a principle that i have in sustainable ambition overall is just the sense that um, we are in control we more than we realize and that there does really need to be some amount of ownership uh in how one comes at managing their own ambition for their life. And some of what I hear you describing in some of these things, like no one's gonna regulate, self-regulate for us, right? Our minds and our bodies. Like it really does take us taking ownership of that, right? And yes, somebody can, a coach or somebody can kind of, or your partner or a friend can intervene and kind of say like, hey, I wanna bring you to this present moment or what have you, but it's still, it takes us to do that. And I'm curious, just if you have anything to share around that idea and this idea of kind of, you know, you talk about the idea of self-regulation of both our minds and our bodies. And I'm curious about what is our responsibility, right, to ourselves mm -hmm. in that self-regulation? Yeah, I think you, you nailed it. Of You know, we have to take personal responsibility. It is so is so easy for us to blame things on 
everybody. It's so easy, you know, blame things on our president for how stuff has crumbled. It's so easy to blame our partner for um, like not getting the right vegetables at the grocery store, which I've totally done before. You know, like there's like, it's so easy to, you know, complain that it's my boss's fault that I failed on this project because I didn't have clear guidelines or, you know, whatever it is. And if we don't pause to think about how was I responsible in not maybe being as clear as I could have been or how, um, you know, where, where could have I done better, right? It's like, we have to ask ourselves those questions so that we can learn from them and, and take responsibility because no one is going to do the work for us. And then we're stuck in that cycle of victim mentality, right? That life is happening to us or, you know, and, and we're getting sucked and pulled under it versus us taking charge versus us really saying like, okay, like life, we're in a shitty situation right now, but how do I want to create the best stability or, or the best perspective or the best environment or feel the best that I can? And what does that get to look like? Um, you know, I learned firsthand this idea about control. I mean, I definitely am a controller um, and that's something I continue to work on, but you know, when I was diagnosed with cancer back in 2010, it was this experience of what, like, I'm so healthy. Like, how did this happen to my body? You know, and, and this anger arose that I had the, with my body of, you know, how could you do this? And this relationship I had with my hair, how can my hair fall out? You know, and, and it was a moment where I really had to learn, okay, like I can't control what's happening with the cancer, but I can control my response and I can be part of the healing and be part of the solution instead of be contributing to the, the stress in my body, could be contributing to an unpleasant state, you know? And so that's really where I learned about and where I created the mindful hand of self-care because like I needed that then. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like that shift in mindset was critical to your becoming healthy? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's where um, I also like took, was able to, you know, get out of the victim mentality, which I think, you know, we go into and sometimes it serves a purpose. That's kind of the level one energy that I was talking about earlier. Sometimes it serves a purpose because we need to kind of shut down in order to heal, in order to rebuild, right? But we don't want to stay in that zone for very long. Otherwise it becomes you know, too toxic and we're not contributing or being our best selves and, and people need and want our best selves and we want to be our best selves for others. And, and so, you know, it, it definitely took some time to shift out of that, but then I could see how I could be part of the solution. And, you know, when I asked myself, like, what side do I want to be part of? Right. It's like that, it felt like a no brainer. That sounds like a powerful question for all of us to ask ourselves, you know, which side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on kind of the victim side where you're not in control and you can't be part of the solution? Or do you want to switch to the other side where you are part of the solution? And it just feels like a much more positive kind of expansive place to be. Yeah. And I think that's tie, right. That ties back to our values. It's like, helping us understand what values of ours do we want to honor? Do we want to live into? And, you know, what does it look like for us to ignore that value or what does it look like for us to step into that? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I wanted to come back to, you said the mindful hand of self-care and I was curious, you know, you talk about supporting ambitious people and supporting how they can support themselves holistically. Is that like kind of the model that you go back to in terms of like, when you think about holistic and radical self-care, like what are the components that you have people focus on? Does it go back to those areas that you were describing? Yes. Yeah. So the, uh, the mindful hand of self-care is the framework I use. And really what I notice is the biggest self radical self-care to me is like making yourself a priority and recognizing self-care is not selfish, but it's smart. And the word self-care, I even notice, you know, over the years that it's, 
kind of gotten changed because of social media. And, you know, to me, self-care means caring for self. And when we can care for self, we then can care for a community because we can't just care for our community if we're not caring for ourselves. That like doesn't, that doesn't equal anything because it's essentially we're giving from nothing then. And that's not, that's a burnout, right? We are going to not be able to sustain that. And it needs to be this even cycle. And so, but one of the biggest blocks I noticed, right, is time, is our relationship to time, especially ambitious people where they just want to pack everything in and they want to, um, you know, like add more to your plate at, you know, and they don't know when to say yes and when to say no. And right. And so time becomes, I think, one of the biggest blocks to work through and for people to start to feel and be able to determine for themselves, you know, what is nourishing me? Like what is a hell yeah. And what is depleting me? What is a no? And for people to, again, use their body as that barometer versus it being their mind because our minds can just go wild. Um, so yeah, we come back to the framework of the mindful hand of self-care. We work through a lot of different, you know, thinking traps that the mind makes up around limiting beliefs, around taking time for yourself, around, um, taking breaks, you know, around, um, being able to ask for what you want or setting boundaries. Yeah, that's great. Can you say a little bit more about people's relationship to time and why that's such a challenge? Yeah, well, I'll talk from personal experience around time for a moment of, so a little backstory, my, you know, at the end of my bio, you know, one mind, one body, one life. And those, those, that was like a principle that I came to after surviving cancer, right? I mean, I have one life, one body and one mind, and how do I want to be treating and taking care of them? And before, you know, I was diagnosed when I was 21 with cancer. And so before I, you know, was in college and, and, you know, I grew up in a family, my mom, you know, who passed away the same year I was diagnosed with cancer, she had been battling leukemia for about 10 years. And so I always knew the preciousness of life, right? That was right in, in my face. But once I personally was going through my own cancer battle, it hit me on a completely different level. And then losing my mom three months later after I started chemo was a whole other piece of life is short. So let's not F around doing what doesn't matter to us, right? Let's really take time to care for ourselves and do what we care about. And so I learned how precious time is. And because I felt like time was so precious, sometimes that made me want to speed up, do things faster, put more pressure on myself to get it done because who knows like what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen next day. And that wasn't sustainable. You know, that, that was that pressure I was putting on myself was taking away energy from me being able to be present in the moment. And so through my own healing, through my own work, through coaching myself, through working with therapists and coaches myself, because, you know, I walk the talk too. Of, and we, you know, was really coming to this place of like being able to trust time, right? The time is going to unfold how it's supposed to. And I say this, the trusting time with like I'm still practicing it. It is still something that I'm stretching into, but trusting timing. So where ambition, right? Where that sense of clarity and drive can also meet the perfect timing. Uh, you know, a lot of clients, some clients I work with are, you know, in their thirties and, or even their forties and they want to, they're looking for their partner, you know, they haven't found their partner yet. And that sense of time, 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 you know, is creating a pressure cooker and where can they trust the timing will unfold as long as they're also doing the work, right? It's not like we just get to sit back and let go. So, and then time, you know, is also the sense of we all have 24 hours. We all have the same amount of hours. We all might have different responsibilities and obligations, 
but we get to choose how we want to use them or how we want to set boundaries around them. It's amazing. If you look at your phone, right, you'll normally get a end of week summation of how much you've spent on your phone or how long you've looked at Instagram. And I'm like, holy moly, if I could have those two hours back, right. Or three hours back or whatever it might be for the, the average and, and realizing like, wow, I can't use that excuse if I don't have time. You know, it's just such a, an American culture go-to response. Yeah. Gosh, there was a lot of wisdom in what you just shared. Yeah, so <laughs> no, that was so great. I mean, just the notion, this idea of trusting time, you know, it's been coming up a lot and, um, pace is one of the six P's of right effort and just the importance of pace, the idea of patience. Um, and also I really love this, like re people recognizing we are in choice, right? Um, so important. Um, before I move on to another area that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, I'm just curious around this space of what we've been having a conversation around. I'm curious if you ever hear like bad advice or recommendations around this topic and things that people, you know, or you, that you feel like don't work or that people should just kind of be aware of, you know, especially around either busyness or burnout. I'm trying to think of something specific. What's first coming to mind is we can all, and I say we, and I mean like the cultural we, but like love tools. And I love tools. I am like a tool fiend. I want to constantly be learning, you know, give me this tool for this. Like what's this life hack, right? What's this? And I think instead of it being about tools, it's more about like frameworks, right? Like what framework is going to work for you um, is, is more of a supportive approach because we can learn, we can read, we can, you know, watch as many YouTube videos or whatever, Instagram live videos or whatever it is about tools. But if we're not practicing and reflecting and thinking about what's going to work for us, then it's not going anywhere. So I think that's the idea of like, are we just consuming, right? Or are we actually in like the reflection practice and integration of it? So I guess, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but you know, that sense of, I think when people just create, like here's a long list of things you can do, it might spark people's creativity and like, oh yeah, I didn't think of that, which is awesome. But I think, the power and where I really talk about sustainable self-care is that it's coming from you because you are the wise one of your own life. You are the creator of your own life. And so it's going to work for you. So with like my clients, I'm not there to just tell them, okay, this is what your morning routine is going to look like. And this is what you're going to say to yourself. And this is, you know, it's like, no, I'm helping them connect to their own wisdom to be the guide. I love, I love that. Yeah. And I think, um, I love tools too. And, yeah. and I think it's a great insight to kind of also say that, you know, even though there are a number of things out there, it really is figuring out and tapping into the one that works best for you. And then I, I also love this idea of like, cause frameworks are things you can come back to, right? It's kind of like, just like your, your hand um, example and the radical self-care and like those different principles that, you know, it gives a shorthand for people. Right. And different things, like you're saying, different things are going to work for different people. And so finding the right thing that works for them and resonates that they feel they can consistently kind of go back to and integrate into their life. I think that's really powerful because I'm, I, I can relate to that where I can get too enthralled with learning the next tool or learning the next, you know, thing or idea, but, you know, really something that like, what, what are the examples where you've actually taken it up and adopted it and integrated it into your life. That's a really important thing to look for. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, the, uh, before I kind of close with some kind of rapid fire questions, I wanted to get your perspective. I know you do work uh, with corporate clients and one of the six P's I outlined for right effort is around place. And yet I think right effort for one is the hardest pillar that I've kind of laid out for from a sustainable ambition perspective. And then I also think place is the hardest component because 
you only have so much control within the places you work. And so we do need companies to help support people in finding sustainable ambition. And, you know, I think that um, companies need to better support employees in this endeavor to uh, avoid burnout and overwhelm. And one idea that I think about also with regard to kind of right effort is this idea of like, it's not about work-life balance, but about building work-life resiliency. And you talk about this idea of building resiliency into companies. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about that from you and hear your thoughts on like, what's the biggest opportunity you see for companies to build resiliency into their cultures and to support their employees? That's such a good question. Um, the first, The first thing that comes to mind is is authenticity, like dropping this facade of, you know, we work in corporate, so like we don't show emotions and, you know, we don't, we talk like very robotic kind of feeling. And so it's like dropping that and giving permission for people to feel human, for people to feel held, heard, and seen, like that to me is what companies should be doing. And, you know, it's, they're doing their best. It's obviously really hard when they can't control where people are from a locate, like physical location perspective during this day and age. Um, you know, if people are going to put their video on or off, right? Like I know there's been a lot of discussion around that. Um, but it's helping, like helping them feel like a human being that is not just about their output. And you know, they might have that sort of connection with their manager or with their director where they have more of that human collaboration, but it might not be in the company culture. And that's really where I think there should be this shift. And so authenticity is huge and compassion, you know, which kind of ties right into that. Like, can we see each other's humanness and can we hold space for each other to be human and to show up and be like, you know what? team, like I'm having a really shitty week or day or, you know, and, and that it's not that the fear of I'm going to seem like I'm being underproductive or that I'm weak or that I'm not capable is going to be their fear. Like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing that people could just show up and be held the way they are and know that they're like fully able to be expressed that and that companies are not going to penalize them for that, you know, and I think we headed into this pandemic with people feeling like they had to put their foot right on the gas pedal, right? Everybody had to transition virtually right away. And, and then there was this fear driving people of, I need to show like layoffs might be com- coming. Like I need to show my manager, my boss that I'm can, capable and, you know, can work 12 hours and, and, you know, their people aren't seeing, seeing their bosses around, right? The water cooler kind of thing. Um, who is I, I was talking to a client who was saying she realizes she's so much more productive working from home than she was in the office. And so now she has all this extra time on her hands and she then feels guilty for stepping away or doing something else or signing off, even though she's done for, with her work. Whereas if she was in the office, she didn't feel that guilt if she was taking an hour to do like online shopping and like, but as she was, look, she looked, you know, in quotes, looked like she was doing work. And so, right. Can there be the sense of like authenticity, compassion, and trust, right. Really built in. Yeah. One thing that's coming up for me, um, is I had never thought about this before, but almost like that the antonym to professionalism is humanness. Mm. And that's so interesting to me because that's kind of what you're describing. And I was actually curious, I I had thought, but maybe I think I might be wrong based on what you're sharing, um, that on some level, at least for me during this COVID time, I I feel like there's been a little bit more acceptance of that humanness, the fact that we're seeing people in their homes um, on calls, I see people's children coming in and I love that. And, um, 
you know, I'm wired to kind of like that or certainly see it being acceptable and seeing people as we've been talking with some others on the podcast about this idea that, you know, you're not a different person when you walk in the doors of work. You're one human being and you're a father when you're, or a mother at home, you're a father and mother when you're inside the four walls of a, a company. So, you know, I love this focus on on humanness, but just to kind of close on this, I, do you think it's gotten better during COVID or do you think it's actually gotten worse? Uh, you know, I don't know what the data, you know, would show on that. From speaking to my clients, I think overall there's this sense of acceptance, but there's lacking trust. Like, I think some employees are feeling that they can't fully let down that guard. Like they fully can't trust the words that their C-suite is telling them because there's still that fear of like, you know, am I going to be seen as not being productive? Am I, well, if I'm taking more time off, like maybe I'm going to be the one like, like people are afraid to, people aren't taking time off. Right. You know, so that's kind of also telling us something that they're not feeling fully comfortable to, to fully step away. Yeah. Yeah. I hear so that. So I think there's that sense of like, oh yeah, show us your dog or like, yeah, let your kid come in. But you know, so there's still, there's still more to work out there. Some background noise. Yeah. To how is this interpreted and how is this seen? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks for that perspective, Wade. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to close with just some rapid fire questions. So um, I won't respond. I'll just kind of move from question to question. Okay. Uh, no pressure at all. Um, the first one, just how do you define success for yourself? Ooh, good question. Um, success is a feeling, a feeling of like I feel lit up. I feel in slow state. I feel really supported. I feel purposeful uh, and do meaningful work and getting the feedback that's meaningful. And um, really that, you know, combination of like, I feel my reach and reaching the people, like having a, a wide enough reach. And um I'm able to, you know, maintain the lifestyle that's important to me. What's the best life advice you ever received? The first thing that comes to mind, my mom, when I was really young, um, she was putting me to sleep when, when I, and I think I was having a hard time going to sleep. And she said, or I was telling her about like an issue at school or something. And she said, you know, don't let your monkey mind take control. And that was the first time I learned about the monkey mind until, you know, fast forward. It's in a lot of my mindfulness teachings and, and some Buddhist work. But for those listening, uh, monkey mind is, you know, this idea that we have monkeys jumping around in our minds, creating noise and havoc and creating all this anxiety of what we think is going to happen or, um, so it's like learning to not listen to those. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you give your 20 year old self? Mm. It kind of brings a little bit of like tears to my eyes. Cause that was a hard time in my life with my mom being sick and, but to play more, I feel like my thirties have been more about play than my twenties were. Cause my twenties were more about like surviving. Um, so if I could have played more. It's a great reminder for all of us. What's your best um, time-saving or productivity tip? For me, it's all about scheduling my workouts into my day and knowing that when I schedule that in, I always feel so much better and my mind is able to be focused with whatever I'm doing, because I know I'm going to have that movement or that space for myself later in the day. And it's one of the first things that I schedule in when I look at my week ahead as I'm planning. How do you like to take a break or pause? Might be the same answer. You're maybe mm -hmm. exercising. Um, yeah, some sort of walk, like definitely, especially in COVID times, just getting outside fresh air is life-saving. 
What's one thing you can't live without? Mm. Um, God, it's like a combination of, of pastries, specifically like croissants and vegetables. <laughs> That's a great mix. <laughs> That's so great. Um, I love that. Um, well, wait, this has been so great. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us uh, today. I've learned a lot and I know I could keep talking with you, but we're out of time. So do you want to close with just a final piece of advice you'd love to leave our listeners with? The advice I'd leave you with, ooh, is just breathe. Words my mom said, but it's, you know, just breathe. Where can you breathe more intentionally? I love that. I love that. So as a final thing, Wade, where, where can people find you to keep in touch? And is there anything we can do for you? I would love to meet your community. So uh, people can sign up for my newsletter at wadebrill.com. Or if people are interested in building a daily ritual for themselves or want more self-care, mindfulness, holistic practices, they can check out centeredinthecity.org and sign up for a seven day free trial, build their ritual and you know have all of these on-demand resources to help everybody feel their best self. That's great. I encourage people to do that and I will capture all of this in the show notes for people to reference. And thank you again, Wade, this has been so fabulous and I appreciate you being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, so much fun. Of course, great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.